Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly. Coming up on today's episode, how do we fix the Met? Britain's biggest police force just seems to go from one crisis to another, with more and more revelations about a toxic culture amongst some of its officers. We'll ask what can be done to change it, as the latest report insists it's not just down to a few bad apples. First, though, as ever, on a Tuesday, it's time for our columnist panel, and it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's Finkelvich, which means joining me in the studio. I've got Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from whatever planet is on today is David Ivanovich. Morning, David. <laughs> Actually, when I didn't see a picture, because you get a little kind of preview picture of, uh, of Danny, I thought, God, something's happened to him. It's just going to be Vich today. And then I thought, yeah, Vich. I mean, that's got a, it's got a kind of ring to it. But uh, thinking about it, I'm glad you're here, Danny. And very good to, to see you, Matt. Uh, just to uh, update listeners on on the thing that they're, they're most interested in, what is it that's on the sofa behind you today? That's a chat. Yeah, last week, I think it was a lot of books, wasn't it? What is it today? Uh, it's the flag of Albania, of course. I'm sure I've told no, you. No, this I know, but what's on the sofa? What is what's the pile of stuff? There's carrier bags. Oh, no, 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 gym no, no, kit. This is this is this is. You, I, I, I told you that as with the approach of my first grandchild, I'm doing the business of thinking what it is my kids are going to inherit from me that they don't want to inherit, and then beginning to chuck it out. What do you what do what do you do with them inheriting the sort of low level fury? <laughs> 
presumably I don't know. I mean, it is, it is, I mean, I was it is, it is remarkable as you kind of go through everything that you've got and the things that you've accumulated. You think this is just personal to me. This is just something that has n- no one has any interest but me. And it's got to kind of go before I do. And then there's things where I'm going to have to point out the significance of having a letter signed by William Hague when he was president of the Oxford Union, because that's just kind of quite funny. And then they can decide to chuck it out. And then there are other things which they'll almost certainly want to keep. And but it is, but it is an issue. I mean, it, it genuinely is that neither of you are even remotely close to uh, contemplating at the moment. Well, we're going through a slightly similar thing at the moment because my wife is going through her mum's house and at the weekend found every birthday card that she was given at the age of one, uh, one two and three, <laughs> which on the one hand is... Really, but, like, what are you supposed to do with that? Well, I've well, just... Uh, <laughs> because I'm just doing this book on my family, I've been looking through uh, documents that my aunt left with a friend when they realised they were going to get arrested. She was going to be in a concentration camp, and she collected it back after the war. And actually, all these things that you think are a load of rubbish, they're incredible to read now. And they did include things like birthday cards and or, you know, kids' autographs, books, and things like that. That was precisely what she thought was valuable to oh, her. And God, indeed, they turned, out, they turned out to be valuable to her later. <laughs> Danny, what do you think is going to happen to Matt Chorley's wife then? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's brilliant. That kind of significance. On that basis, we're all going to have to keep everything. Well, that is that is my slight concern that everything does appear to be arriving in our house. Uh, vast collections of uh, family photos where someone's head's been chopped off uh, because um, because of the, the nature of taking photos. Um, what also the other thing I love about photos is do you remember the the, the, the when you you could get a bo- an, another set you'd take a film to the to the developers and we'll get a bonus set we'll get, and now we've got two copies of all these terrible photos <laughs> uh, which we'll have to deal with anyway Matt you will end up you'll end up throwing those away you're just out so you might just as well do it now exactly well, we, I think we're basically going through them and magic you know, locking them in our own minds and then we'll we'll um, we'll yeah. deal with them uh, but should we move on and talk about the news let's discuss uh what happened last night with uh with uh, Keir Starmer. We've had Chris, um, uh, you know, he was, and you raised an interesting point, uh, David, when we were discussing what we would discuss. What do we even call these people shouting at Keir Starmer? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I worry now about the term protester because it seems to now um, uh, alight upon a series of people who aren't actually protesting. Um, if, if you, I mean, ask yourself, what do these people actually protest? Somebody about Extinction Rebellion wants to protest about government policy about um, uh, climate change and to draw attention to climate change. Um, what you've got here is a group of people with a series of kind of disparate conspiracy theories and so on, which actually which can only really amount, if they're trying to put, put anything into practice, into a desire for complete revolution against what they call the new world order. Are they protesters? I don't think they are. I think they kind of represent a sort of... This is a kind of form of political party in itself, not in the sense that we have understood it before, but in the sense that it has a kind of different world vision that it wants to see um, uh, created, although, of course, it has no strategic notion about how to do it. I mean, and there aren't very many of them. But protesters, they aren't. The other thing I'd say about protests generally, I recognise the notion of somebody standing behind a barrier and shouting and waving banners and leaflets. I do not think protesting is going up within three inches of somebody's face and shouting as loudly as you possibly can and making them feel physically intimidated. That, to me, is not 
protest. Um, it's something else, and I think we've got to have a different name for it. Yeah, well, it's almost certainly an offence, isn't it? I, I do, I do think uh, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about Boris Johnson and his responsibility for it. And I've heard Conservative friends make two points, which, uh, on the surface of it, I'm sure they think, well, that's a true statement, therefore it's reasonable. One of them was, well, Keir Starmer was head of the CPS when the original uh, Savile decision was taken, therefore the Prime Minister wasn't technically incorrect. And the second, also a correct statement, um, the uh, demonstrators were outside uh, number 10. They were demonstrating against Boris Johnson. Keir Starmer happened to come along. It's not Boris Johnson's fault. Those are the two arguments I've heard uh, people make. And I really do urge them not to be satisfied themselves with making that argument. The truth was, what Boris Johnson said last week was designed to encourage an appeal to those particular people and to echo their attack. Uh, of course he did it in a more sophisticated way, but didn't strictly speaking, you can go on and say, oh well that was true because he was head of the CPS when the decision was taken, but that's not what the statement was made in order to evoke and what happened yesterday demonstrated that. So I, I do appeal to those people who are attempting to make what I'm sure they regard as a defensible argument uh, about these uh, two events to understand why Julian Le Julian Smith, who's made the point, uh, or some of the other Conservative MPs who've made the point that Boris Johnson should withdraw it, are correct. And I suppose that th th there's a really weird dance that Number Ten are going through as well, where they're saying that they're trying to stress that, that, that what happened yesterday was nothing to do with them because the uh, demonstrate. I think demonstrate is probably better. Uh, only shouted one of the things that Boris Johnson shouted in the Commons last week, and they also shouted some other things which he didn't. But there's a clear, you know, there's, there's, there's a clear overlap. They're both shouting Jimmy Savile let's, at Keir Starmer. Let's make, let's make it clear. The, 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 the direction in which that piece of information travelled was from these horrible uh, people to Boris Johnson, right? What he did, however, was to amplify them yeah. uh, and uh, deliberately allude to them. Yeah. And that is what even though people sort of say technically he was making a critique of uh, Keir Starmer's management of the CPS. No, he wasn't. Uh, what he was doing was alluding, and this is why people reacted as they did, alluding to the statement yeah. that was being made. Yeah. And that is why it's correct to call it a smear. Where I worry sometimes is when people sort of say, you know, Boris Johnson says something that was flatly false. No, it wasn't flatly false. Yeah. What it was was a smear. Yeah. Uh, that is a different, yeah. uh, a different thing. I think what's important here also is to, is to recognise a moment when something crosses a species barrier. I mean, we know that something like the QAnon conspiracy theory and things allied to it have a significant kind of, they say, anti-paedophile, although I think a psychologist would say that their interest in paedophilia is so... It, it, it is so involved that you kind of wonder about their own motivation sometimes and so on. But nevertheless, that's a very big part, you know, these kind of false notions about uh, a child abuse. Then there is the far right's own use of things like the grooming gangs um, as, uh, an, uh, uh, as an instant response to anything to do with Muslims, etc., which you get, which I'm sure Danny does as well. You get all the time. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of, it's a kind of perpetual, it's a perpetual thing. But what happens when Johnson does this takes something which is kind from one of these far-right sites or they doesn't know it and then puts it out there uh, is he crosses the species barrier in the same way as the republicans did when they endorsed trump as republican candidate despite his endorsement of the birther theory about, about barack obama in other words he was already a well-known conspiracy theorist by the time he was actually in, in, endorsed by the republicans as their candidate for president in 2016 and at that moment 
this thing and no previous Republican candidate would have dreamt of endorsing such a endorsing such a theory. Your worry is that it crosses a kind of species barrier, and that is what leads you down the road. Yeah, that's a very good bit, way of putting it. To, there, ja right? to January, to January the sixth, and so on, and people feeling entitled. That so demonic are their opponents; they are entitled to try and disrupt the procedures of a democracy by force. And what what, what do you make then, um, Danny, of the the new team in Number Ten and their ability to? get a get a handle on all of this given that i mean the the reason that boris johnson did it last week was because his back was against the wall he was in the house of commons being harangued from all sides about the fact he was being investigated by the police party sue gray and all of that um it is not a sign of personal strength if you have to reach right. for the uh the, the bookmark jimmy savile to start uh, throwing around these these are perfectly capable people who are reasonably well thought of. Only last week someone was speaking very highly to me of Steve Barclay and, uh, you know, that's been my experience of him and also of, of Gitto Harry. But that's not the point. First of all, uh, the responsibility and the leadership comes from the Prime Minister who sets the culture in number 10. It makes no sense to change all the staff, expecting this culture to change if the Prime Minister doesn't change the way they behave. And I believe he doesn't have the capacity to change the way that he behaves. And so, therefore, this won't work. Secondly, I've got some technical problems with it. I think that appointing uh, somebody who's a Member of Parliament to be Chief of Staff, as particularly they're also sharing... Uh, cabinet committees from my own experience of being an aide uh, to a party leader who was not the, the prime minister who was leader of the opposition and from talking to Gavin Barwell from seeing other prime ministers I just think the idea of trying to combine managing the staff at number 10 Downing Street with being a member of parliament it, it you yeah. can combine having senior ministerial office and being a member of parliament so it's not a question of of um, not having the capacity to do two things but it's a particular kind of job. I think maybe you can be head of the policy unit and be a member of parliament. I think being chief of staff, he'll find that very, very difficult. He'll have to pick and choose what he does. He won't be able to use Fridays, which I know the team always does use uh, when the prime minister's in their constituencies because he'll be in his own constituency. And he'll also have this problem of what is he, what is he accountable to the commons for? Um, well, we'll see. Um, there are some advantages we can all take. Maybe it'll mean that the Prime Minister's advisors are more open and more um, accountable. I've always thought that would be a good thing. I think it won't make much difference to the way that Boris, is, Boris Johnson behaves because the leadership comes from him. Yeah, people don't change. Well, people don't change. And, and, well, the, same, the same thing is true of this Carrie Johnson uh, nonsense uh, as kind of now put out by Lord Ashcroft of Belize, um, uh, uh, which is to suggest that somehow or other... Uh, and we saw it before in something that Tom Bauer, um, uh, the biographer, uh, said, which is that, that she somehow uh, uh, occupies a nefarious niche by having views of her own and politics of her own and talking to her husband. It is entirely up to Boris Johnson who he listens to and who he uh, 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 and, and whose advice he actually takes. Tony Blair had lots of people around. Now, every now and every, you know, the, it was a cheap shot to say Peter Mandelson is the real uh, force in number 10 or Alistair Campbell is the real force in number 10. And it's absolutely clear when you look back at the period, there was only one real force in number 10. And that was Tony Blair, because he made all effectively made all the decisions based on the advice that he was uh, he, he was getting. And that is true of prime ministers. They can be influenced by who they choose to be influenced by. You can't blame the influencers. And in the end, it's the prime minister that counts. By the way, I've been the subject of some 
times in, in of articles about the sort of influence of... I remember noticing it, people who were too clever by half. I knew they were... They may as well just said sort of fat Jewish people in, uh, advising the Prime Minister. Like, <laughs> for all, all given my name. But uh, so I knew they were referring to me, and it was almost always completely ridiculous. Uh, you know, in the end, it, it is the Prime Minister who yeah. is in charge of their own... Um, their own number 10. Let's uh, turn our attention to Jimmy Carr and this question of whether or not he's finished his career. Has he really been cancelled? I suspect actually his Netflix stand-up special is probably doing quite well. After he made a joke about the Holocaust uh, and and referred to uh, the the murder of gypsies, that was basically the the punchline of the joke. Uh, And it's been condemned uh, by lots of groups, Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, Auschwitz Memorial, Hope Not Hate. Uh, what, What have you made of it, Danny? Well, look, if he'd swapped that uh, around um, and he'd said, uh, you know, the great positive out of it would have been all the Jews dying, um, that I, I immediately looked at that joke that way and just thought, um, not just uh, theoretically, but I realised in uh, the um, the insult given to, to the, to the uh, death of Roma people, everybody who was involved in the Holocaust or uh, related to it in any way was being grotesquely insulted. So the first thing is there isn't really a question. It was a completely inappropriate joke, and it's not a defence of it that it was funny. In fact, that makes it worse. Uh, If he argues that it was funny, he's arguing that the right thing to do is to laugh at Mm. uh, people being uh, killed um, in in a genocidal uh, uh, act. So... um, I thought it was grotesque in every way. I think it should be possible to uh, to act in the following way. The first is to signal our disapproval uh, to Jimmy Carr and uh, publicly our solidarity with the people who've been uh, offended by it and uh, to redouble our efforts to understand about the Roma element of the Holocaust, which I think people didn't know about as much. Uh, I think the right thing to do is to suggest to Netflix that they might not want to make money out of that joke and therefore they might consider removing it. Uh, personally, I'm not a big fan of Jimmy Carr anyway, so this doesn't come up. I think anybody who listens to Jimmy Carr should at least evaluate where, how funny they regard him to be. But what I what I don't think is the case is that um, as a result of it, you should say you know anything that Jimmy Carr ever said in the past, anything that he ever says in the said in the future should be eradicated. People can say stupid, wrong, offensive, horrible things, and um, you know uh, still be human beings who you know, have lives and say things and not everything they say is valueless. Yeah. We ought to be able to ha- show some sense of judgment and proportion as well. David, I know because having read his book and listened to me on podcasts and other things, but I know that Jimmy Carr, and I, not in this particular case, but in the past he has said that part of what he's doing, it is called His Dark Materials, his show, is to sort of push and test what audiences are willing to laugh at, ah. which I suspect is what he's doing here, but uh, perhaps this time he's overstepped the mark. I'm sorry. I mean, uh, uh, th- there's a word that I can't use uh, on air um, to describe that kind of, that, that kind of argument. Uh, the first thing is, uh, Jimmy Carr is not, as far as I know, from the Roma or Sinti people. So he's making a joke about people who he's not. It's almost certain that the people he was talking to in the audience, almost none of them were Roma or Sinti people or knew anything about it. So this was a, essentially a joke about actually, it's a good thing to kill gypsies because none of us like them. Isn't, and isn't that really kind of funny? And isn't it, by the way, also very daring? Um, uh, Larry David, in Curb Your Enthusiasm, does jokes which concern the Holocaust in some kind of a way, which are pretty near the knuckle, but they are actually, but, um, but they're funny because it's a Jew telling them and a lot of Jews would understand them and so on, and they're not jokes 
if you like, aimed at a minority of people um, who we're supposed to dislike. I, I actually regard a joke like this as giving a license to people to hate other people. I really do. It's funny to do it. It's okay to do it. And I suppose um, that, that's... I agree with you, David. Yeah. And, frankly, and frankly, I don't care what happens to Jimmy Carr. If that's what he thinks his material is, if he thinks that's the way in which uh, uh, people should be treated, and if some of his audience thinks they're funny, I don't care what happens to any of them. If he's cancelled, I don't give a damn. Um, if he wants to, get, if he wants to be like that about people, and incidentally, relatives of whom are still alive, of yeah. course they are, and probably living in this country, and people who identify with them are alive and living in this country, and so on. Yeah, and as Danny absolutely rightly says, the more funny you think it is, the worse it is, because the more you think it's justified yeah, yeah, yeah. to laugh at the te- uh, what terrible things that happen to other people because you think they're not real people like you. Well, so well, let's let, let's move on. So I'm just slightly conscious of the time, and I want to make sure that we can discuss uh, Bamba Gascoigne. Uh, Bamba, the news this morning that the former University Challenge host Bamba Gascon has died at the age of 87. He hosted the show for 25 years between 1962 and 1987, including one famous episode in 1975 when a young David Ivanovich appeared on the programme. Uh, remind us what happened, David. Uh, uh, Danny. Yeah, David. Yeah, no, no, it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> essentially, the... We were elected at a general meeting, three anarchists and me, to represent Manchester at University Challenge. We decided to use it as a form of protest because that's what we were into those days. The anarchists got 400 guest tickets forged. So instead of the kind of four people with a gonk turning up in the in Granada, there were 400 protesting students and so on. The legend goes that we answered every question the first time round with... Uh, a left-wing leader. I remember I answered some of my questions in a Scottish accent. Sorry, I was 21. I, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and poor old Bamba Gascoigne had to restart it again. And um, I remember halfway through, we were before the restart. I went into the loo and found myself next to Bamba Gascoigne at the urinals. And at this point, I think it was then I developed the shy bladder syndrome, which has gone on for the rest of my life. <laughs> Um, as we stood there next to each other, uh, me having done the things that I had done and him being furious, although he was really quite nice about it afterwards when we didn't deserve it because we were such a bunch of little so-and-sos. Uh, Danny, uh, somebody's, uh, Ken's been in touch to point out your brother was on University yeah. Challenge recently. Listen, I was invited was on the phenomenal. alumni version of it and I couldn't go. Now I've watched my brother Anthony on it. I'm not going to say yes to that. My goodness, he could answer every question and that was just unbelievable. I'd be hopeless. Um, I, I did meet Bamba Gascon through the SDP, Matt, uh, and I've always wondered whether he's got his £5 back from Roy Jenkins because <laughs> I was holding a bucket when Roy Jenkins and Bamba Gascon came out of the meeting and Roy Jenkins opened his wallet and only had foreign banknotes, <laughs> uh, which I've always, I'm sure, is a metaphor for something. And Bam Gascon had to lend him a fiver for the SCP, so I never know whether he got it back. Fabulous. I think I'll ever find out now. Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich there, and of course you can read Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times bed box. Up next, how do we fix the Met? Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Britain's biggest police force is in trouble. Each week seems to bring more damning evidence of a toxic culture among many of the officers in the Metropolitan Police. The Met uses up a quarter of the police budget for England and Wales. It serves Greater London and works against terrorism throughout the country. Last week, the Independent Office for Police Conduct found there was deep-rooted evidence of disgraceful behaviour of misogyny, discrimination bullying and sexual harassment amongst 19 police officers, mainly based at London's Charing Cross. They didn't believe that this was just a case of a few bad apples, but systemic failures in the organisation. The Met, of course, is already struggling to salvage its reputation after PC Wayne Cousins abducted, murdered, uh, abducted and murdered Sarah Everard in March. In December, two constables were jailed for showing photographs of two murdered sisters. Dame Louise Casey has been appointed to carry out a review of the culture in the wake of the Cousins case. Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, has put Met Commissioner Cressida Dick on notice. So, what we thought we'd do is take a look at what is wrong with the Metropolitan Police. Is it just them? Is it all police forces? And what can be done about it? I'm joined in the studio by the Times' Crime and Security Editor, Fiona Hamilton. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Matt. Take us through... I mean, that's a sort of abridged version of, of the problems in the Met. Is it worse? You've been covering this beat for, for some time. Is it getting worse... Do we just know more about it, do you think? So I've been covering uh, crime for, I suppose, the best part of a decade, a bit more. And I would say that just the the sheer focus on the Met at the moment, the the range of controversies uh, across the spectrum from issues such as sexual misconduct to allegations of racism, homophobia, uh, allegations or claims of institutional corruption is probably the widest I've seen in my time. Um, and the level of public concern about those issues, and particularly in the wake of the horrendous murder last year of Sarah Everard, uh, I've, it, it feels like it's reached real fever pitch, and I've not known it like that before. I suppose one of the things about that report that came out uh, last week into what was going on at Charing Cross is that, that actually clearly there was some willingness for, amongst some to come forward and reveal more about what was going on. Absolutely. I mean, what we saw there was was it had been going on for some time, but once the Independent Office for Police Conduct started to take a look, officers came forward who had felt very intimidated by misogynistic predatory behaviour at that police station, and they were able to give accounts. Uh, but unfortunately, we just don't see that enough. Uh, a lot of this behaviour is disappearing through the cracks because people don't have the confidence to come forward. And in some places, of the Met Police, but but other police forces certainly as well, there are there are deep pockets of cultural problems that need to be addressed. We should because there was a bit of a focus on that report last week. I mean, it was just horrendous the stuff that was you know, um, revealed in that. The WhatsApp messages that were sent around, loads of them actually, I just couldn't read out on the radio, but 
Some of, I mean, some of them are just over here. A couple of one, one male officer wrote to a female officer, I would happily rape you. If I was single, I would happily chloroform you. Another one talked about uh, um, uh, getting a woman into bed is like spreading butter. It can be done with a bit of effort using a credit card, but it's quicker and easier just to use a knife. This yeah. stuff is just, I mean, clearly as well, it's not just, you know, being sent among, you know, the terrible thing of banter, WhatsApp, groups, but being sent directly to female colleagues as well. Absolutely. And I think it goes to the heart of one of the issues of this, which is uh, the sheer horror and discussion, uh, the, the, the nature of what they're talking about, the kinds of things that they're supposed to be fighting against and bringing people to justice for. And I interviewed a former chief constable last week who said, of course, we were all totally appalled and horrified by the crimes of Wayne Cousins, who abducted, raped and murdered Sarah Everard in an absolutely horrifying eight-hour ordeal. Uh, but these officers and, th- and their WhatsApp messages um, and what they were doing predates that crime. But some of the things they were talking about were the types of things he ultimately acted out. And these are the people who are supposed to be keeping us safe. They are officers who women are supposed to be, com- be able to come to when they're um, being domestically abused, when, when crimes are being committed against them. And that really knocks the confidence of the public in that police force when we all see uh, things like that, 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 that what they're discussing on social media when they think no one is watching. And we haven't even started to talk about the casual references to racism, casual homophobic um, comments that were made. It, this one really went across the spectrum. It was quite shocking. And it has, it does seem to have sort of led to an escalation in the sort of political response as well. But it's always, it's, you know, trying to get a hand on who is actually responsible. Like I said, you've got Sadiq Khan, the, the mayor of London, uh, putting uh, Chris, Chris Dick on notice. This was uh, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. She was up in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee last week. This is what she had to say. We have seen now too, too many times, too many instances where in policing, we just see the most appalling, just the most appalling behaviours, the most appalling conduct. The fact that, that, that those behaviours are allowed to take place there were no disciplinary actions, um, no one saying that's wrong. That is actually about leadership in policing. So who is in charge of the Met, Fiona? Well, day to day, Dame Cressida Dick, the commissioner, answers to Sadiq Khan. He has oversight and holds her to account for the running of policing in London. But her appointment is ultimately uh, a matter for, well, officially the Queen who signs it off, but it's Priti Patel's appointment. However, it's written into the legislation that she must have regard to the Mayor of London. So uh, Cressida Dick was given a two-year extension to her contract amid much controversy. That was signed off only recently by Priti Patel and Sadiq Khan. So I do find it somewhat contradictory when we we are constantly hearing from them, putting her on notice. Uh, They they are responsible for her being in post for another two years. So if you were putting her on notice, you might have said, we can have six months or, you know, before we just make it up, we'll extend by six, rather than saying, we're putting you on notice by guaranteeing your job for another two years. Well, by the time her contract was extended, and I don't think anyone would deny that this is one of the toughest jobs in Britain that she probably has, but we already had the Cousins case and there was an outpouring of allegations about misogyny 
and sexual misconduct in the police at that point. We had the uh, the inquiry into the Daniel Morgan murder, which uh, which the panel found there was institutional corruption. And we had a real problem with alleged racism at the Met, uh, where there's been a series of stops and searches of people of the black community and, and a real concern about how they're handling those issues. So at that point, if they really were going to put her on notice, they did have an opportunity then to say actually, we don't think you're the person for the job. We're going to get somebody else new in. But they, they didn't do that. Let's bring in uh, Sal Neeson, the Regional Director for London, the Independent for Office of Police Conduct, who did that report uh, last week. Morning, Sal. Morning, Matt. Um, I don't know if you listened to the discussion we're, we're having. I mean, the, the report that you uh, published last week laid out, the you know, in pretty graphic terms, the problem with the culture, uh, particularly at Charing Cross, but you make the point this isn't just a few bad apples. And what's tended to happen in the past is the sort of each time we've had another one of these cases, it's been put down to, well, he was a wrong un, you know, but he's been rooted out. But your, your point is that what you've actually done is just shone a light on something, which is, which is, you know, this is not just Charing Cross. This is not just a handful of police officers. This is a cultural problem right across the force. As you say, Matt, you know, it's really important to address that metaphor of um, bad apples. And we've specifically done that in our report because we are seeing evidence from our other investigations that this isn't isolated. We are seeing this sort of kind of conduct happening in other instances. So it goes beyond, you know, that metaphor of a few bad apples. It actually goes to the battle which these apples come from. And if I can just speak about the report for a second, last week we published that report um, where we made used our legal powers to make 15 recommendations, which are largely to do um, which are concerned with tackling the culture within the Met. And, you know, you were speaking to Fiona earlier and you were describing some of the some of the really graphic nature of the messages that were exchanged by these officers. Now, we made a really conscious decision to put this out into the public domain because what we are doing is here, we're lifting the lid on what canteen culture actually looks like, not just for the benefit of the public's consciousness but also preserving officers because they need to understand what some of their kind of female colleagues and their kind of colleagues that come from black asian minority ethnic communities what they suffer and what those sort of conversations and hateful speech actually looks like uh, you mentioned that there were other investigations how many similar inquiries have you got ongoing right now i couldn't go into specific numbers but it's fair to say we've seen I think we even seen an example last year, Matt, when we looked at the the tragic um, murder of Reverend Smallwood's daughters, Viva and Nicole, and some of the issues which were surfaced um, from that. But there are a range of cases where this is happening. And it's also fair to say, and it's an important point to make, that it's not just the Met where we are, we've seen these issues, where we're speaking about the Met today. But last year, we wrote to the National Police Chiefs Council because we were really concerned about what we were seeing. There's a range of different independent investigations from police forces across England and Wales, and we wrote that letter uh, in last April. Do you feel like it's been acted on? If you could just keep, you know, you're still you're still coming across more and more of these cases. Is it being acted on? What should be done about it? Does it need to be much more, you know, zero tolerance? Does there need to be a change of leadership? What what needs to happen? Do you think? I think this is clearly evident for what needs to be done here, Matt. We made 15 recommendations and we spoke about zero tolerance. And it's worth highlighting 
uh, for your listeners to be what we actually, some of what we said. We've asked, we've recommended for the Met to become publicly an anti-racist organization on all the work that follows that. An anti-racist organization that has zero tolerance for racism, that has zero tolerance for misogyny, that has zero tolerance for any form of bullying and harassment. And also we've recommended that when the Met are investigating internally um, conduct matters or concerns raised by their police officers, that those victims and that come forward, they're given the right level of um, protection, the, light, the right level of kind of safeguarding within those internal investigations. And um, we've also recommended um, how supervision is done because what happened in Charing Cross Police Station and the culture that was allowed to develop with these, um, with certain police officers, it was, it happened in a dark corner. There was no light shone on it. Where was the supervision? And we, we identified some serious concerns about supervision and they form um, part of the 15 recommendations we've made to, to the Met Police around this. And, you know, our recommendations that we've made here give the Met an opportunity. They give the Met an opportunity to accept our recommendations and embrace the change that is needed here because a really important component um, of kind of trust and confidence is for the Met to enjoy the trust and confidence of its own officers first, its own female officers, its own officers that come from these different cultures and backgrounds, and for them to feel included as part of their culture and for them to feel safe and empowered to raise concerns when they've got concerns. Because yeah. if, they, if they don't feel that, map, if they don't enjoy the trust and confidence of, their, of these officers, then how can the Met hope to rebuild the trust and confidence from the communities that these very officers come from and where the biggest gaps are. So I'm interested in the issue of the disciplinary system. Uh, I've covered a lot of these cases and what strikes me is that you'll occasionally get an officer dismissed for gross misconduct. Uh, The vast majority of people, so if we look at the terrible Wembley murders and uh, as as a reminder, these were two constables who took photographs of the bodies of murdered sisters at a Wembley crime scene and then shared them uh, with colleagues and actually members of the public as well. Those two officers were criminally charged and are in jail at the moment. Uh, But there was a wider inquiry into misconduct because there were other officers who knew what was going on and didn't come forward uh, and a wide range of other issues that emerged from that. But the vast majority will end up getting words of advice very minor sanctions. And what we often see, and we've recently seen it in the the Stephen Port case, where officers who uh, failed to catch a serial killer were ultimately promoted despite having those lower level minor sanctions against them. Does it need to be more punitive, do you think? I think um, think it's a really interesting question, Fiona. I mean, as you know, what we are charged to do as the independent office for police conduct is to do that independent investigation to find out what happened and to consider whether there's any potential criminality here or whether there's any potential misconduct. For the Operation Houghton investigation, that we did nine separate independent investigations, what we were charged to do was, is there a case to answer for misconduct or gross misconduct? Now, we investigated 14 police officers who were under notice, but 10 of those officers, we found that there was, to, that there was cases to answer for gross misconduct and misconduct. Now, once we've completed that part of the process, 
you know, our role ends there and it is handed back to the Met Police, who then convene an independent panel with a legally qualified chair, and they take forward that disciplinary process. So we have no involvement there. Now, what I can say is that the two worst offending officers who sent some of the most graphic and worst um, exchanges of messages and conducted the worst sort of behaviour, they were dismissed for gross misconduct. The remaining eight officers suffered in a range of sanctions, but we don't have any influence in that part of the system. So we have to try and um, leverage the powers that we've got to the greatest effect, which is why we thought it was really important not just to kind of conduct these nine independent investigations as robustly and you know as thoroughly as we possibly could, but also to use this as an opportunity to drive forward some change where it's needed, which is why we made the recommendations we've had and we're calling for the cultural change that we are. Let's bring in now two former Metropolitan Police officers. Shabnam Chowdhury is a former detective superintendent. Morning. Good morning. Uh, we've also got Dr Victor Olisa, a former uh, BOA commander for the Met and, uh, and former head of diversity at the force as well. Morning, Victor. Good morning, Mark. Um, Shabnam, first of all, give me your experience. You've heard the conversation we've been having. Um, your experience of being on the front line in the police and, uh, you know, does all the reports we've heard, whether it's been about uh, sexism, racism and so on, is, does that shine with your experience? Yeah, I'm afraid it does uh, from the early stages of policing and then right through to the end of my service. And it wasn't just for myself um, who experienced those issues. It was colleagues that I was managing or um, dealing with on a, a regular basis. So as a, a frontline officer, but also as a senior leader, um, having to challenge and deal with inappropriate behaviour and comments. Uh, so, yeah, I'm... Things did change, definitely, particularly with McPherson. There were a number of recommendations made. Not all of them were uh, implemented, but we did get some really good things like the community safety commands. We had um, independent uh, advisory groups. We had family liaison officers. So a lot did happen. But what didn't happen, I don't think, and I, I think that's clear now, is that the culture amongst officers um, and the way they behave uh, seem to have been driven underground and then um, it was further embedded within the organisation. And that's policing across the UK, I would suggest. And so give me an example of something. If, if someone said something to you uh, that was, let's say, was, was said something to you that was racist, what would happen in that situation? Do you go to your you know, next, uh, the next person above you. I mean, I suppose that the risk is that they, you know, because of the line of the command, they might, the chain of command, they might have been involved, sympathetic, you know, laughed along, whatever it might be. How can you make sure that it's, that, you, you know, your, A, your complaint is taken seriously, but it also doesn't get bogged down in the fact that this, you know, if it's a cultural thing, that there's nothing to say that the people above you aren't also part of that problem. Look, look there's two types of issues here. Um, one is, which is one that is sort of driven underground and it's subtle, uh, racism or casual sexism, misogyny, whichever. And then there's the others which are overt, which I don't think you'll see as much of the overt stuff, unless, of course, you're within the social media network that you've just witnessed yourselves within Charing Cross Police Station. But the first port of call would ordinarily be to try and nip it in the bud yourself. Mm. When you try and deal with a situation and then suddenly you're finding that others are closing in on around you or you then go and make a complaint 
and then uh, your first line supervisor goes and speaks to the senior officer, which is quite often the case. The senior officer just takes on face value what the supervisor might tell them, and then you find yourself out in the cold and out in the dark and not being supported. So these are the kind of situations that female officers and officers of colours who have to deal with that type of uh, issue. I dealt with my problems back in 1999 and um, I suffered the consequences of those uh, throughout my service. I'm not saying I didn't have a great journey, I did, but it was one hell of an incredible roller coaster ride and I was labelled throughout my service right until I left. Um, I did do well and I was very successful, but that was because I stood up to be counted and I also championed and pioneered change within the organisation. So I didn't just sit there and complain about it. I did things about it to help the service become a better place to work. I suppose the point is that, like you said, you know, that was 20 years ago. and We seem to be still going around the same uh, the same issues on this. Um, bring you in, uh, Victor. What, what about your experience when you were there and how do you, because the Met is so big, how do you change the culture? And is it is it fair to place the criticism at the door of Crest as a dick? Or is it just impossible for anyone to run that as an organisation? Um, I, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's hugely difficult. Um, and I think as the head of the unit or the head of the organisation, uh, I think there's always the, the blame is going to be pointed towards the head of the organisation. Um, you know, but for the commissioner to take personal responsibility for each Activity or groups of small people who behave in the most appalling way. No, that that's that's um, that that is not expected. But what the commissioner can do, and the commissioner and her senior team, is to set a tone that actually leads all the way down. To actually say, if people are receiving this type of behaviour from colleagues. They can report it, and when they report it, something will be done about it. You know, and it'll be done swiftly and quickly, and they'll be told what's happened about it. One of the many concerning things about the IOPC report is that there were officers who reported some of these behaviours. Uh, and those officers then felt harassed, intimidated and excluded. Mm. Now, that does not create an environment where we know these things happen. We know these things have happened in the past. They're happening now and probably more frequently than, than probably they were in the past. But, you know, they're getting reported more often now. And you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to keep happening in the future. The real one... One of the real problems is you don't get a sense you know, that the senior leaders are taking this as seriously as they ought to. Victor, I'm just going to bring Fiona in there. Yes, Victor, I was interested. Okay. I mean, as a Met outsider, I, I see one of... There's, there's many problems, clearly, but one of the key issues that I think there is is that there's a massive culture of defensiveness at the Metropolitan Police mm. um, that perhaps senior leadership don't always just go outside and read the room. I mean, the public mood was so strong and obvious on Partygate. And, and for crime journalists, we felt that it was very clear what was going to happen, which was a criminal investigation. It was inevitable, but it took a long time. And when officers are accused of wrongdoing, you often see a narrative of defensiveness rather than um, transparency and, and saying, yeah, let's, let's try and get in and sort this out. Is that something that you, from within, felt as well? Fiona, that's what I'm feeling at the moment. And it's really interesting the way you describe that. And I think, you know, if, if you cast your mind over a number of two or three commissioners in the Met, you know, and, and, and the way that the Met felt. Now, the culture of bad behaviour, like I say, it's in the Met, it's been in the Met in the days, well, way, way beyond the days of um, David, um, um, not McNee, I've forgotten the name now. But, um, you know, well before those days, but what then happens you get some commissioners who actually respond to public criticism if that's what the public is saying 
if that's how the public feel, then it's my duty to address it. That gives you a certain level of actually someone who's taking interest and going to actually do something. When you get a response that actually, as you described, defensive, closed, wanting to find excuses where these things are happening, I mean, to say that the Met's not misogynist, you know, it's counter to the IOPC. Now, I don't expect the commissioner or a senior officer to, to roll over and actually expose everything. But do we expect a senior officer to say, that's what the IOPC is finding? We are going to deal with it. We are going to deal with it robustly. Yeah. And we're going to try and, and resolve it today during my commissionership. I may not be able to do anything in the future, but I will deal with it today. Because so. you're not hearing that, it leaves a lot of concern as to how seriously the senior leaders are taking these issues that are really becoming quite prevalent, as you said. Victor, really good to speak to you. Victor Alyssa there, former Boa Commander of the Metropolitan Police. We also heard from uh, Shabnam Chowdhury, a former Detective Superintendent. Uh, Fiona, just a final word from you. Do you think that this ultimately ends with Cressida Dick leaving, that the best way to show that an organisation is changing is change at the top? Well, Cressida's got her extra two years and, and perhaps I'm being cynical, but I think she's actually a very good shield for politicians at the moment that she can take a lot of the public criticism and flack when otherwise it might be directed at them. So uh, you're always a bit of a hostage to fortune when you say these things, but I don't think she's leaving any time soon and she's, she's made her... she set out her stall on that. Well, we did invite uh, Cressida Dick to come on the show, but instead uh, the Metropolitan Police gave us a statement saying the conduct of a team of officers at Charing Cross Police Station in central London does not represent the values of the Metropolitan Police. We're deeply sorry to Londoners and everyone. They have failed with their appalling conduct and acknowledge how this will damage the trust and confidence of many in the Met. Since this reprehensible behaviour was uncovered in 2017, we've taken a series of measures to hold those responsible to account and stamp out unacceptable behaviour. And as I mentioned, they've asked uh, Baroness Louise Casey to lead an independent uh, review into the culture and standards of professional and personal behaviour in the Met. And uh, they say they've already boosted the number of investigators into professional standards too. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week. You can obviously read all about what we've been discussing online at thetimes.co.uk. Just sign up, get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. And if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email studio at times.radio and throughout February, I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on. That's studio at times.radio. But for now, thank you for listening.